0: It's October 30th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining
1: us today is Genesis Leong to tell us about the upcoming
0: TEDx Honolulu event.
1: Finally, we'll talk about resources for programmers and coders who want to write to the next killer app. We'd, of course, love your questions, your thoughts as part of the conversation. So be ready to tweet or call in. But first, the headlines.
0: Well in breaking astronomy news a pair of research teams uh, today announced the discovery of a planet similar in size and mass to Earth orbiting a star 700 light years away in the constellation Cygnus and like Earth like Earth it appears to be comprised of rock and iron with a very similar density but the planet named Kepler 78b speeds around the sun at a mere 8.5 hours and its tight orbit means the surface temperatures are at least 2,000 degrees hotter.
1: The exoplanet and its orbit period was first observed in August, and University of Hawaii researchers submitted a paper that was published today in the science journal Nature. It turns out the same planet was also the subject of a separate paper out of the University of Geneva. Andrew Howard from the UH Institute for Astronomy said in a statement, The gold standard in science is having your findings reproduced by other researchers. In this case, we did not have to wait for this to happen. Well, the UH team discovered the planet through its gravitational effect on its parent star as well as
0: the periodic dimming of the star's observable light. And uh, when trained, the Keck Observatory on the system for eight days or more for detailed observation, the observations were complicated uh, by sunspots and other variations on the surface of the star, which could affect estimates of the planet's mass. Astronomers were able to determine the speed of the star's own rotation, improving their measurements of the planet's orbit. Now, the uh, I guess the interesting thing about this is that you know they've been cata- um, you know sort of cataloging all of these exoplanets, but really the the the, the emphasis is on trying to find these Earth size mm-hmm. orbits, uh, Earth size exoplanets, and and this one is of course very interesting because it has this sort of rock and iron. Um, surface. Well, it's
1: unusual that we have both the mass and the density so we can learn more about it than we would about something that we could just maybe just optically or infer mm-hmm. its existence of. And uh, they're also really intrigued by the speed, eight and a half hours, and it's done a complete orbit. So that's 20 times a week. So when you're trying to perform these calculations, at least you have a pretty quick sample size mm-hmm. in those eight mm-hmm. days, for example, to get more information about it. But it comes out of the Kepler uh, survey. They've, they're looking at and watching 150,000 stars and they're running just various uh, algorithms to try and find these specific st- uh, star systems mm-hmm. with planets in them.
0: Well, yeah, so I think uh, they're doing quite a bit of uh, research in this area because this catalog is quite big and I think the uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, they come up with more uh, sort of interesting discoveries with with sort of interesting uh, let's say atmospheres or or uh, surface material. Absolutely.
1: Last week, UH scientists announced the discovery of a new species found only in one lava cave on Kilauea. This week, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service added 13 plants, a shrimp, and a fly on Hawaii Island to the list of endangered species. The 15 newly added species protected under the Endangered Species Act is only the latest set of expedited reviews by the federal government following a 2011 agreement addressing a backlog of over 750 threatened plants and animals across the country.
0: On the discovery front, researchers in the Department of Microbiology at the College of Natural Sciences specifically looked into microbial diversity in Hawaiian lava caves. They sequenced a genome of a form of cyanobacteria described as the most successful microbes on Earth. Gloeobacter uh, kilowensis is only the second known species in the genus, which itself was discovered nearly 40 years ago. The researchers say that the species may be a missing link connecting modern microbes to primordial
1: ancestors. Meanwhile, it was the picture wing fly and the anchialine pool shrimp that were included along with 13 plants added to that endangered species list. The fly survives in only two places, Ola'a Forest and Manuka Natural Area Reserves on Hawaii Island, island the pool shrimp is also only found on the island and is one of the most primitive shrimp species in the world the plants include sunflowers asters and trees including the kookoolau uhiuhi haivale aku and haha well you know
0: the um kookoolau is actually if you have seen you know the uh spanish needle uh, which is kind of a long little uh, black needle and it has a burr at the end and sometimes sticks to your pants Well, that is a, you know, that is sort of uh, an invasive invasive species of Biden, and they actually have, as part of their endangered list, a couple of species of native Bidens Mm -hmm. that are also included. And the native Bidens actually don't have any barb at the end, so they didn't uh, develop this ability to try to stick on your pants. Right,
1: actually one of the most unique uh, traits of the species that kind of develop here is that they don't have as many defenses mm-hmm. because there weren't as many threats. Um, these particular s- trees, for example, on the list have fewer than 50 individual trees surviving in the wild, so that's why they're trying to protect it. And uh, the shrimp is unusual, this one, because all shrimps can pretty much f- swim forward and backwards. This one can only swim forward. Oh. So, I mean, all these unique traits that you can only find here.
0: Yeah, and you know, if you ever get a chance to, uh go into the forest where uh, some of these endangered species are uh, is really a magical place because, you know, you got to think that this pristine environment has been created here, you know, basically without us interfering. <laughs> right. Oh, well, next story. Uh, Hawaii's first space launch is coming up next spring, but many— Pieces of this complex project are still coming together. On Monday, the 135-foot rail launcher to be used in the launch was unveiled at the National Technical Systems Facility in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In addition, a full-size model of the super-stripey rocket that will be used in the Hawaii launch was unveiled. It was part of an open house hosted uh, event hosted by the Air Force Operational Responsive Space Office along with the UH. Hawaii Space Flight Laboratory, and the Pacific Missile Range on Kauai. The
1: upcoming ORS-4 mission is the first orbital launch from the Pacific Missile Range facility and the first launch of the Super Stripey launch system. It'll demonstrate a new low-cost launch capability that can deliver 300 kilograms to low-Earth orbit. The rocket will carry the 110-pound Hiaka sat, which is the University of Hawaii's hyperspectral imager as the primary payload, along with 12 CubeSats. Several campuses in the UH system are involved, including Manoa, Honolulu, Windward, Hilo, and Kauai. With UH playing a
0: major role in designing and planning the launch, it would be one of the only universities in the world to have both satellite fabrication capabilities and direct access to orbital space. Interim President David Lasner said in a statement, the university is pleased to support the state in becoming a low-cost gateway to space and provide our students with real-world experience and will be invaluable as we train Hawaii's aer- uh, aerospace workforce. I got a chance to uh, go to the SOAS open house uh, this past weekend, and uh, it was pretty. You know, they only do this every other year, right? Right. So it's a kind of a two-year thing. If you miss this one, you got to wait two years. Uh, The Hawaii Space Flight Laboratory had a uh, had a demonstration, and it was pretty. It was pretty neat. Uh, uh, They didn't have any rockets or anything, but uh, you know, they had some of their um, uh, Hiaka sat, uh, and they were talking about you know some of the subsystems that go into the uh, you know the actual payload.
1: And this was also kind of promoted as part of the uh, the Hawaii Innovation Initiative. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had guests talking about this space launch as well as the innovation initiative. I mean, an attempt basically to build a $1 billion research enterprise in Hawaii to create kind of that third leg, mm-hmm. that third sector for Hawaii beyond, say, military and tourism. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, you know, it, I think it's pretty interesting that it's UH will be the first university with its own, w- with very close access to orbital space. We might not be able to beat their football teams right now, but maybe we can put some satellites over them. Yeah, Yeah. And spy on them. Yeah, or, or yeah, exactly. <laughs> One way to, to to dominate. All right. Box jellyfish turn up on Waikiki Beach every month, 8 to 12 days after each full moon without fail. But despite the visibility and obvious impact these jellyfish arrival events have on the community, there is very little reliable research focused on them. Last week, University of Hawaii researchers published the results of an ambitious long-term study of shoreline jellyfish aggregation stretching back 14 years or 173 full moons.
0: Well, the work is built upon monthly jellyfish beach counts initiated in the 1980s by a Honolulu lifeguard. And the findings are valuable, given no other studies of jellyfish abundance conducted around the world focused specifically on box jellyfish species. Angel Yanagihara, assistant research professor and the senior author of a new report, sent a statement, Our box jellyfish's uh, collection data is the longest continual time series census of a cubozoan species in the world. The the and provides a rich data set to analyze and assess physical and biological oceanographic
1: correlations. The team compared the jellyfish activity with three climate indexes, seven weather measurements, and 13 physical and biological variables ranging from sea surface temperature to plankton density. The analysis confirms the consistent, predictable timing of jellyfish aggregation events in relation to the moon cycle, but the scientists also found no predictable pattern in the size of each jellyfish swarm and no net increase or dint Decrease since detailed records were first kept, so I guess the variability in this uh,
0: swarm they, you know they 're very predictable about when they come, but the size of that population sometimes varies, and I guess they uh, perhaps uh, think that that's due to the food source,
1: right? I mean, they did pick up maybe a four-year uh, ebb and flow cycle to it, but pretty much again, it can be it can be pretty variable. They said along that uh, 400-meter section of the beach that the uh, the lifeguard basically was monitoring for 14 years, you could see sometimes as few as five jellyfish to mm-hmm. as many as 2,300 jellyfish counted in one of these arrival events.
0: I got you know I got to hand it to that lifeguard. I <laughs> mean, you know, it's one thing to get stung by a jellyfish, but I mean, you know, how do you count? I mean, they're not exactly Visible. I mean, they're pretty clear, translucent, uh, you know, jellyfish floating around.
1: Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting also to see that even on the global scale, there's limited research of, on specific species, considering how frequently something as venomous as box jellyfish and, say, I don't know, high revenue tourist areas kind of overlap a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, as we had uh, Angel Yanagihara, Dr. Yanagihara on the show before, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of value to the research she's doing. And I don't think this is the last we're going to hear about this stuff. Yeah, good stuff. Well... Here's a couple of few more quick
0: stories we wanted to share with you. Scientists and students on Oahu will benefit from a three-week visit by Doppler on Wheels, a portable high-tech mobile radar that can move around the island to study clouds, rains, and other weather patterns. And stopping at schools along the way, the Hawaii Educational Radar Opportunity, The program is funded by the National
1: Science Foundation and involves a special educational deployment of its equipment. Plans for a submarine cable connecting Australia to the U.S. gained an extra dimension last week with plans to also deploy an array of externally tethered marine sensors to repeaters positioned along the length of the cable. Expected to come online with the APX East cable, the Oceania Sensor Network is already raising concerns over the military and international surveillance implications of widely deployed deep-sea sensors. And on the Big Island, the second
0: annual TechCon Kona conference will be held this Saturday, November 2nd, at the Nelha Gateway Center. Speakers include uh, State CIO Sonny Bagawalia and Blue Planet founder Hank Rogers. TechCon Kona is a business technology solutions conference with a focus on people and the planet. To register, you can go to techconconcona.com. And now joining us in the studio is Genesis Leong, and she's here to tell us about the next TEDx Honolulu event coming up uh, soon. Welcome to the show, Genesis.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you know, TEDx uh, has been uh, featured a couple of uh, events recently, and, and there was a, a TEDx uh, salon Event and I think you were part of uh, putting that together too.
2: Correct, correct. So um, basically, I'm the license holder for TEDx Honolulu. So anything that's attached to that, um, such as the TEDx Honolulu Salon mm-hmm. event, and then we also have the TEDx Honolulu Ed event as well.
0: So the uh, the the Ed event is more uh, related to. I guess the topic of education, but is it is it affiliated with UH at all?
2: Um, no, it's not. Actually, um, with this event in particular, um, I work with high school students from Iolani uh, and Punahou mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and Laser Academy to create um, an event um, similar to what we do, kind of on a bigger stage. Um, and what the theme behind TEDx Honolulu Ed is, is actually what education for the future is. So it's really kind of giving that opportunity for the students to uh, put onto stage uh, what they think as for the future is. Mm.
1: Now, um, TED TED videos have been around for a while. The big inspirational speeches on a... dark stage with uh, uh, good slides, and uh, the TEDx is an opportunity to make that franchise local. And uh, I think you've organized probably four or five of these, and each one kind of has a theme. What's the theme for this upcoming TEDx?
2: Correct. Um, So TEDx Honolulu Ed for 2013 is actually cultivating community. Um, And I think that holds a lot of value behind uh, the reasoning on why um, I wanted to take over the TEDx Honolulu um, event, Um, and I I really believe that uh, it's really kind of helping to build community out here in Hawaii.
0: So uh, uh, what are you doing in terms of uh, soliciting for speakers? Uh, Have you put the word out, and and are they submitting, and, and what is the process by which you go through to select?
2: Um, well, this, for the speakers itself, um, we do highlight um, local speakers here in Hawaii, and uh, usually we go through a pretty intense process. So, um, I want to say maybe four or five months before the actual event, um, we start off with the theme and figuring out what we want to do with the event. Um, start with a wish list of people that uh, we invite uh, to be a part of it. And then we also do another step, uh, which is actually auditioning, uh, doing a call out for speakers, um, and we go through a process with submitting applications and then and actually having them come in and speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one part of it is extremely important, um, especially in the case that uh, within our own kind of community and networks, we are kind of in this bubble. So you um, you need to break out of that and actually start to search outwards um, and really kind of open the opportunity up.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a, a, a set of speakers or already said or that's still kind of going on right now?
2: Yes, uh, we do have a set of speakers um, so actually within the last month or so um, they've been going through a pretty intense uh, speaker training process. Uh, we are working with Adele Carnegie um, in and helping to get them trained as well mm-hmm. um, but making sure that uh, they do adhere to quite a bit of the TED rules um, and then the most important part about becoming a speaker is actually sharing their idea and that's really what TED is, is a sharing of ideas um, and so it's really kind of making sure that they're in line with that. And um, I know a lot of the speakers get really nervous as well um, before they get on stage. So making them feel very comfortable. And they all are experts within the areas that they talk about. But um, it's also making them feel comfortable on stage.
0: Can you uh, share with us any of the uh, ones that are already selected
2: as speakers? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we do have a variety of actually speakers and performers, um, similar to the set, uh, TED stage. Uh, so we do have Ian Kitajima, who's actually from Oceanet. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to have him um, on board um, and really sharing uh, what they're doing Then also um, a lot of uh, what he kind of focuses the design thinking process. Um, and we also have Henry Capono um, on stage as a performer. Um, and then also um, with the speakers itself, it's actually a diversity of ideas and topics, um, but all kind of within the theme of cultivating community. Mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. have a total of about 12 um, speakers on stage this year.
0: Oh, that sounds good. Uh, where do you have uh, it planned to be actually Presented. I mean, you know the last mm-hmm. one you did was Aulani, and that was mm-hmm. like. Like, too far for me. I mean, I have to <laughs> fly, fly, a, plane. Have to fly <laughs> a plane over there, you know?
2: Right. Um, so this year, we're actually hosting it at the Hawaii Theater. Um, it's on November 16th. It's a, it's a beautiful venue. There's a lot of history behind it. Um, and then also, it's the, the kind of stage that we usually see within the TED. Mm-hmm. Um, I think was also very important to me that we had it in Chinatown as well because there's a lot of this um, upcoming boutique businesses. Um, there's this very thriving art community there. Um, and I think it's important that people kind of come back to Chinatown and rediscover what Chinatown really is so um, kind of using this um, event as a way to maybe just bring another kind of um, look onto Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Now,
1: in events past, there was actually kind of also a selection process for the audience. I mean, Hawaii Theater is a pretty large venue. Is there? Are you still going to have to apply to come and attend?
2: Well, um, luckily, we don't have to do that this year, um, and it's really kind of curating the audience. Um, and so what happened in the past is um, there are a lot of rules that we actually have to adhere to um, in being with TED. One of the rules is is that if you have not been to a TED conference, that you're limited uh, to 100 attendees um, and that not only includes attendees but it also includes the volunteers as well um, and so that's a pretty painful process um, and in order for myself um, I felt that it was very important to rather than be inclusive that we just go ahead and just open it up um, and so um, I took that plunge uh, and I attended the TED conference this year it's a TED active it was in Palm Springs
0: so, so that allows you to get more than a hundred. Yes, correct, correct. And so, you uh, have you already started the, putting the word out, and I guess what does it cost? To yeah.
2: Um, so, yeah, the word's um, slowly getting put out there. Um, it it's uh, eighty dollars, uh, eighty five dollars. I'm sorry, eighty five dollars for a general ticket, 70 dollars for uh, students, um, senior citizens, um, and youth. Oh, Where good. can
1: somebody go to find more information about TEDx TEDxHonolulu?
2: Uh, TEDxHonolulu.org um, is the best place to go to, and that has a lot of information about the speakers um, as well as information about the event itself. And,
0: and when was it again? I don't think we uh, said yep, the November 16th?
2: Yeah. November 16th, correct, yes. Oh, okay, got yeah.
0: it. Well, thanks, Genesis, for joining us. Thank
2: you. Thank you for having me.
0: And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by
1: Russell Chang and Kyle Oba, to tell us about what it takes to be a programmer. Do you want to become a programmer, and what does it take, and what are some of the options you have to learn your way to get the skills to make that happen? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation, so pick up the phone, give us a call, 941 or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689.
0: And, of course, we're live, so we're monitoring Twitter at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. You can tweet us your questions there. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
1: Did you know there's a professional association that specializes in scaring you?
2: They do have a trade group and a big trade show with about 8,000 buyers a year that are all professional exhibitors.
1: Yes, there is. Boo, I'm Kai Rizdahl, the Haunted Attraction Association.
3: Next time on Marketplace, it's from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Café.
1: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
0: Hello, I'm Jean Houston, author of The Wizard of Us. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about transformational lessons from Oz. Please join me. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Russell Cheng and Kyle Oba. Russell is a serial entrepreneur whose latest venture is Dev League, a training resource to produce
1: coders in a matter of 12 weeks. Kyle, meanwhile, heads up Pas de Chocolat, a programming and design firm. It says on his LinkedIn profile, I collaborate with others to build things. We focus on education because we like it. I'd like to learn how to speak French and Japanese. Japanese, let's face it, he says, he says, I'm pretty average. <laughs> <laughs> I had to
0: include that in there. Uh, how can we meet the growing demand for application programmers? These guys will answer that question. And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or one 941 3689 from the neighbor islands. Russell and Kyle, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe.
3: Thanks for having us on the program. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to be here.
0: So maybe we can start a little bit uh, from the sort of demand, supply and demand standpoint uh, about programmers. Uh, you know, there's always there's always been this this sort of perception that uh, you know there's not enough talent here. There's not enough uh, uh, people in technology, and companies are out there looking for these folks. Uh, what's your what's your sort of assessment of the marketplace, uh, Russell?
3: Well, let me give you a statistic then. Okay. Um, I recently uh, was able to take a look at CoFounders Lab, mm-hmm. and I think there was a session that was held, we- you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, twenty-two people signed up for it. I went and took a look at all the different profiles on that on that CoFounders Lab, and uh, of the twenty-two, I'd say seventeen of them were uh, hustlers, and only five of them were developers. Hustlers, hustlers, people who are you know business development, uh, marketers, uh, non coders, non developers, uh-huh, in other uh-huh. words.
1: Well, I know when we have this uh, conversation quite a bit when we cover, say, a Startup Weekend or another event like that, and you might find a lot of marketers, you might find a lot of social media experts, but when it comes <laughs> to people that can get their hands dirty in code, they're the ones that are the most sought after. Now, Kyle, tell me if I'm wrong, but even the company that I work at, uh, there is interest in getting into development and finding developers. We do have uh, developers on our staff, and the fact of the matter is they are uh, they are um, scarce. They are something, and in fact, most of them that work independently have too much work, too many opportunities. Am I wrong?
4: Yeah, that's actually what I see as well. Um, there are a lot of hugely talented programmers in Hawaii, and they are under quite a bit of demand. They all have really great day jobs. So I would say that it's it's difficult to find people, but, but the question is not necessarily are there not uh, good people here. Mm. The question is, are there sufficient opportunities for those good people to just be hanging about, if you will?
0: So that goes back to the question of supply and demand. I mean, are, obviously, there's there's some talent uh, in the marketplace. There There is a demand because a lot of the people that are talented are pretty booked up. But are, are you sort of saying that if you raise the supply, that there may be some question as to the actual opportunities that might exist out there?
4: Yeah, that's that's what I was getting at is the opportunity. Um the developers will appear, I mean the developers will come out of the woodwork if mm-hmm. if there is a sufficient opportunity. I mean, you know, because we work on some things together that when the when the money is there quite frankly to support a family or to to live a lifestyle that people are used to mm-hmm. uh perhaps in the Bay Area or somewhere else, um those people will sign up for the work, right? So um, so it might not be that they're just kind of hanging out, you know, saying, hey, give me work, give me work, give Well, me work. And,
1: and I know from the developers that I know that uh, the conversation they dread the most is, hey, I've got an idea for an app. I can't pay you, but I'll give you a 50% stake in all the millions of dollars it's clearly going to make. You know, that's uh... – That's called sweat equity. <laughs> and, and, and Russell knows <laughs> a lot about sweat equity. <laughs> I should sure do. Now, uh, so the other thing, though, about this, this skill, should you develop it or have it, is that you can work – for people that aren't here, um, you know, Hawaii is home largely to a largely quiet underground network of even Google employees, Yahoo employees. Well, maybe not now with Mercer Meyer, but you know, people that were working for large uh, corporations, but they lived here because they could live anywhere.
3: Right. When we were doing our research for Dev League, we were looking for instructors, and it was very surprising when we went into LinkedIn. We were able to find um, you know potential potential instructors, and potential employers. They were on the neighbor islands as well, and and they're here. And they're you know they're gainfully employed and and some of them are, might even be potential um, you know investors in companies and startups. Mm-hmm. They're here underground and they don't you know they're hiding out in that sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Now um, you know Kyle brings up a, a, a good point in that you know if the money is there, people will gain the the expertise or the uh, the um, the skill set to actually meet that demand. I kind of look at uh, how how Cisco as an example. Really was able to sort of carve out this niche where, if you were able to get your sort of CCIE uh, certification, which is like the Cisco um, uh, engineering level, that you could pretty much demand whatever salary you wanted because there were companies out there willing to pay for that, uh, and they wanted to hold that as a as a uh, example of, you know, the sort of level of support that that company could provide. I'm I'm just kind of curious from both of your uh, sort of uh, perspectives. Are there companies out there that are willing to pay for good programmers? And and you know, does a does a company a business in Hawaii really understand the value of that kind of talent?
3: Okay, so let me approach it in a, in a way that um, it's maybe a little bit more easy to understand. Essentially, what Dev League is is we're, we we want to turn amateur coders into professional web developers in twelve weeks and give them a bright future. So that future, you know, in terms of front-end web developers, entry-level front-end web developers, uh, they may be here in Hawaii. And there are, there are some companies here in Hawaii that are willing to hire front-end web, you know, web developers right from the get-go, right, entry-level. There are a lot more companies on the mainland, particularly in the Bay Area, that, um, that will hire these people, you know, our graduates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the pay scale, obviously, is very different on the mainland than it is here in Hawaii, but I think one of the things that you need to think about too, and you know, I'm sure Kyle will bring this up as well, is that the experience level of working on, uh, you know, a Facebook or a Twitter or a Square or any of these major brands, uh, you know, websites that you've visited and you know these apps you you work on and stuff, um, the 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 work flow and the the level of expertise, the world class level is mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. and we'd like to bring some of that back here. So even if our our graduates go away and work in, in the mainland they'll have an opportunity somewhere along the line to come back to Hawaii mm-hmm. and share some of that experiences here. And that floats everyone's boats.
1: We're talking to Russell Chang of Dev League and Kyle Ova, super programmer and awesome guy. And we're talking about getting the skills you need to be an application developer and uh, what you might be able to do with those skills. If you've got a question, if you've got an app that you're trying to find a programmer for, why not find a way to build it yourself? We'd love your questions or calls at 941 or from the neighbor. 8779413689
4: If I if I could just jump in there real quick I think I was a little bit simplistic when I was saying you know if the money is there then then the programmers would just show up um you know we, I've been talking to a ton of people about this recently and um it's not really just about the money I mean if you have let's say let's say someone gets becomes a great developer in Hawaii right I mean we're all interested in developing the ecosystem in Hawaii and making it a great place to work and live right and if we just talk about money and dollars um i don't know that we're really going to be able to beat silicon valley at that particular game mm-hmm. um, so what a lot of you know the people that i know have been talking about is well how do we make the job opportunities just as attractive as they would be you know to say work at a facebook or something like that where they're just literally dangling money in front of you right mm-hmm. to people who have development skills um so that's where i think that you know the larger community you know i don't have the answers to that right i think that's where the larger community can chime in and say okay what do we really want in order for us to stay here as developers or technical people you know that have you know s- you know more skills than I have, for example um that I think is the interesting conversation to have mm-hmm. um, it's not just about the money right we all live here because of something and it's not just dollars sure. excellent
0: okay. well you know um you bring up a really good point and and Russell also kind of brought up a, a perspective of if you were to Take a twelve-week class at Dev League and and get your sort of skill set and chops up to the level where you could potentially get a job at, at uh, at Google and really you know experience what it takes to build an interface that millions upon millions of people are going to be uh, hitting and 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 having a user interface and having a, 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 a sort of an interaction with, an experience with, and that kind of experience is something that you may not necessarily get working on a mobile app here in Hawaii. But the question that I have is, will those people ever come back? Because that kind of experience doesn't really exist here. I mean, that, that level of real um, intense uh, y- sort of uh, user uh, activity on a website doesn't have, th- that, that, that kind of uh, activity doesn't occur in Hawaii with, with many of the companies.
3: You know, when I spent 16 years living abroad, and I came back in 2007, and one thing I learned living abroad was that you can leave Hawaii, but the Hawaiian you never leaves. And so, people who 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 are from Hawaii, you know, born and raised, or have an affiliation, or what have you, who um, went away, um, come back for a reason. And usually, that reason is not for money; it's not even for a particular job. It might be, but a lot of times, it comes back. They come back for family, or they want to raise their children here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, I think that draws is, is is it's. Continually there for us, right? And so, um, you know, just finding a job here is is is, is one thing, but having an, an ecosystem and having an opportunity or a bright future is a very different thing. And you know, at Dev League—that's what we're trying to do—is give people an opportunity and a brighter future, and that's really through coding.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, oh, if I could just jump sure, in, yeah. I
3: think that you know,
4: that's a great strategy, like the Dev League strategy—you know, training our own you know folks locally to become you know seriously competent professional developers and excellent strategy. Um, so uh, my wife, and Kara, and I are teaching a class at Iolani School on uh, iPad application design and development. And one of the first things that we did with those students is to take them on some field trips. So they went to uh, Real Geeks in Kailua, which is, you know, an awesome startup out there, and then also a Wall-to-Wall Studio just here downtown. to mm-hmm. wall yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it, it was – so the reason that we did that was so that people could see that these opportunities exist locally, mm-hmm. right? mm and you know, so one, the opportunities exist. you know they're not highly publicized like they are you know in the Bay Area because that's where the press is um but um because of that, I think you know because there aren't we aren't saturated with these startups, we aren't saturated with these large companies that are doing technology, there's a ton of opportunity, right? I mean, that just basically says there's a vacuum of this this type of of work for this type of work. And this type of opportunity exists here. People just have to go out and figure out where it works for Hawaii. Yeah,
0: you know, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that—the the the ecosystem of how you might, uh, you know, sort of develop this interaction amongst all the different programmers and create the environment for really, really uh, sort of exciting and creative jobs. But um, you know of course we're talking to uh, Kyle Oba and uh uh Russell Chang, both very handsome and competent uh, programmers uh and uh <laughs> we we encourage your calls uh, and of course that number to call if you want to talk to the actual guys who know how to code uh the call the number to call is nine four one three six eight nine or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine of course uh we want to welcome Chris from Hilo. We'll welcome all our neighbor island callers to uh, Bite Marsh Cafe. Thanks for, the, thanks for the call.
5: Nice. How's it?
0: How's it? got a good Doing good. And what are your oh, thoughts? That's a question,
5: yeah? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so how come when we have the hold music, right? When you, you call somebody and you get on hold. When you first call them up, it says, "You know, please wait while your party is being reached." And you get this lame music being played. How come we haven't had some sort of development that's based off of like local advertisements in order to advertise a local business on hold when you call someone? And you could do that with any platform, any phone service. How come that hasn't been developed yet?
0: Okay. Okay. Wait. Now. So. So you're talking about a. Uh, let's say you have a voicemail system at home. Maybe it's a standalone little voicemail system. You're talking about having advertisements on that, or are you talking about, you know, a a, um, a telephone service that's uh, actually got a voicemail service, and and that's I'm, serving yeah. A- I'm,
5: what I'm talking about is an app that you could download. Okay, so when someone calls you, you have to receive some sort of advertisement before you can contact that person. And what it could potentially do is pay the person who downloads the app. It could be the reverse concept of downloading an app. Most apps are free. Then other apps you have to pay for. This could be an app that could pay you. So in other words, anytime somebody calls you, they have to hear a local advertisement based on their own calling area. Okay. How come okay. somebody hasn't, you know, done something like that? Well, well you
1: could do it, Russell. Yeah, Russell. <laughs>
5: You know, I was
3: going to well, suggest geez, that. I mean, I
5: know absolutely jack about <laughs> programming, and and from my knowledge, all the programmers are in India.
3: Ah, uh-huh. uh-huh. that's a that's uh-huh. a good gotta, topic. That's a loaded
5: there. statement, right there. Sort of like real, you know, value for your for your programming.
0: Okay, well, Russell. So, Obama?
3: what about what about this um, application? I mean, do you think it has some um, some legs? I don't know if it has some legs. I think it would have to be, you know, tried out and, and prototyped and, mm-hmm. and try, you know, built a portion of it built out, right? I mean, uh, it's all people always have great ideas, and end of the day, still need to execute upon them. And so, you know, build up a quick prototype um, and try it out, right? And we don't always believe that there's, you know, only programmers in India. Um, there, I have one sitting right next to me right now, and I got another, you know, my partner Jason Sewell is also sitting outside of the studio right here, uh, and they're awesome programmers, and they can teach this stuff.
1: I would also mention, Chris. You're in Hilo. I'm not. Uh, I would imagine maybe it would take some time for you to be able to participate in Dev League. But in Hilo, you have the East Hawaii uh, Community uh, Organization, and they have Hawaii Tech Works there. That's probably a good hub where you can go and meet programmers or people interested in I starting business. That like that. Yeah, you should. Good luck to you.
5: Thank, you. Thank
0: no, you. you know, Chris brings up an interesting point, and and uh, maybe there's a perception that needs to be uh, qualified here. You know. There has been sort of, sort of maybe this, this historical conditioning that we've gone through. That uh, you know, if you have a application that you want to build, you know, why don't you reach out to maybe some some contacts in in India and have it be be done by uh, uh, offshore? Now, is that in fact is that in fact a, a true statement? And and is it is it, is that um, skill set really truly better done here locally? Yeah, there's no doubt.
4: Uh, if you don't mind me answering this one, um, th- there's no doubt that you can hire developers in other countries and pay very little money for it, right? There's no doubt about that. The question is, you know, you want to build something, right? And so, you know, how much money do you want to spend in the long term in order to, to get your product built and maintained, et cetera? And how much flexibility do you do you need in order to work with that team, right? I've, I've had a lot of experience working with teams in India and other places. And you know, it's not just that it's cheaper. It's cheaper, and you have to spend more time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, this, there's this has been like widely quoted, and you know, the statistics uh, vary, but you know, a good developer will, will, will do the work of you know anywhere from you know ten to more, uh, not so good developers, right? So there are economies there that you have to pay attention mm-hmm. to. It's not mm-hmm. just I've got ten humans um mm-hmm. you know it's like you know the one great developer sitting next to you could be worth 20 you know in another city right so it's, it's not
1: just. And I can certainly speak to that. Uh, my d- day jobs at a real estate company, we do development applications, websites for um, realtors. A lot of them do try to outsource. They find very affordable, off-the-shelf right. things to do. And actually, they come back because it turns out talking so- to someone over the phone who knows how to spell Kalani Olé, who right. lives on local time zone, is just much easier. It's worth whatever premium you might think is expensive. It's kind of worth it to have that. And I would say that you know if you believe in the buy local, support local, that's also right. a good strategy.
4: Yeah, yeah, I would say really briefly that, you know, you know Iolani is not a vocational school and we're teaching kids how to mm-hmm. program, right? And so our approach is not here's some technical skills and you just learn these technical skills. The approach is how do you add value to those technical skills, right? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you make yourself more valuable than somebody who's getting paid, mm-hmm. you know, 3 to $5 an hour, right. Right? right? It's not just by memorizing things out of books, right? And if you look at the startups in Hawaii that are very successful, those programmers are top notch, Right, they're not just regurgitating what they read out of a book. Right, right. Those, these guys are operating at a much higher level than an average developer, and you know they only got there because they love it, and uh, you know they can build things that other people can't build.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's uh, an interesting direction that we can talk a little bit more about because, you know, in terms of talking about the eco- ecosystem, I mean, it really takes somebody with some business vision and ideas of what this. Te- uh, technology and skill set can really become and, and are they able to bring these people together to, to, to create something let's hold that thought, we'll be right back at this short break to continue our conversation with Russell Chang and Kyle Oba uh, about helping to build tomorrow's programmers
1: what will the market be for programmers in a few years, we'd of course love to hear from you you can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands this is Bite Marks Cafe
3: This week in This American Life, their production of the play Peter Pan was not going well. The flying apparatus kept smacking characters into the furniture. Captain Hook appeared, gesturing grandly. And then at a certain point, as he gestures, his hook flings off of his hand and flies into the audience (laughs) and punches an old lady in the gut. (laughs) (laughs) Fiascos this week on This American Life. Saturday at 1 p.m.,
2: On the
0: next On Being, Buddhist teachers Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg explore a Buddhist take on a distinctly Christian teaching, love of enemies.
1: It's very hard to see love as a force, as a power, rather than as a weakness, but that is its its reality. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And today we're talking with Russell Cheng of the brand new Dev League and Kyle Oba of development and design firm Pas de Chocolat about building capacity for application programmers. Say that again. Pas de Chocolat. Yeah, you're good. (laughs) good. Well, how do
0: programmers get proficient and stay current? Of course, you can give us a call and get those questions answered. The number here is 941-3689 on Oahu. Or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands, and you know we were uh, talking a little bit about the um, the the ecosystem, but oh, you know I gotta remember, <laughs> Dean. Thanks for calling, Dean from Honolulu. We want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe.
5: Hey, uh, great show, guys! Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just had a couple of questions. I'll, I'll take the answers off the air. Um, first of all, what uh, kind of background or qualifications? Um, you need to, to participate in the that definitely twelve week program. And um, what kind of um second question is what kind of um, money are we talking about as far as you know these these high end developers. What well, what what kind of kind of round dollar figures or hourly rates would you be would you be talking about? Excellent well, Dean, I'll my answers off the air.
0: Yeah, no Dean, that's great questions and I'm glad, you know, we have callers like you to keep us on track with our, <laughs> our conversations. So, um, and this is something that we wanted to ask you uh you know both of you in fact, you know what
3: what are let's say the qualifications to get enrolled into dev league okay so it, for dev league what we 're taking is amateur programmers amateur and what coders, what is that, what is an amateur somebody who has coded before or has coded in the past? Uh, is taking some you know computer science classes or have you know self taught or possibly even on um, those you know MOOCs right the massively online open you know uh, online courses and um, you know is very interested and more more importantly is very motivated to better themselves in terms of, and, and using coding to get there so um, you know if they've had that pass in the past then they obviously would qualify and of course we have some entrance um, you know examinations to 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 get in and continue on with dev league. Um, I think the second part of it, the question was what kind of you know what's the outcome why mm-hmm. would you, why would anybody do this right well definitely we break it down into three parts we it's part part of it is the coding part of it another third of it is really about the um the collaboration that's really required in build working in a in a in a development team and then the the third part of it the third phase of it really is about um onboarding them into a into a role into a in, into a a job, a company, a, a, right. a company, right? And these starting salaries for um, these companies, you know, whether they're in Hawaii and also in the, on the mainland, are anywhere between sixty and one hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. for startup entry level front end web developers. Now, we you know we can't promise you exactly a job that's going you because that's not what we're selling. What we're selling is be- a better future, and these are portable skills in a very highly um, de- high in demand um, growth area.
1: Now sixty to hundred sounds like a reasonable place to start for sure. Now, Kyle, is it true that, for example, you you live here? We all know we live in Hawaii for a reason, and it certainly isn't the higher than average pay for for your typical job. Um, does that sound about right to you in terms of what you can see for a front a, a starting front end application developer?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I'm sort of away from that, um, I guess that job interview right now <laughs> since I kind of I kind of work for for my wife. Um, but exactly. uh, we all do. We, we all do. Yeah, we all do. yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. We Kara all do. is a designer with a failure uh, analysis background. So um, anyway, I won't go into that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's but probably, uh, she's yeah, always analyzing. She's always listening. You know, <laughs> she's listening. To she's this prepared for right your failure. Now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so what I would say is, um, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you know, it's exactly what Russell's saying. It's it's literally an investment in of a better future, right? Like a, you could learn how to program and use it for nothing related to your career, right? You could, you know, we do art projects, you know, so it's like a it's a form of self-expression. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, it could just be, you know, you could have a day job that's uh, completely unrelated to technology where you 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 have you experience some frustration with something somewhere else uh in your operations and you and you say, "Oh, maybe I can solve this with software." Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you sell cookies, you know. And, and you just you figure out a way to use software to fix that problem mm-hmm. right I mean it's there's a lot of different ways to cut it
3: that's really empowering right I mean it, a lot of it's problem solving and figuring out stuff so if you have experience in trying to figure out stuff and you can and, and put it into a code that's you know that's that's and, and put it out there for other people to use that's even better
0: so 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 Russell what kind of uh, coding languages would you say are probably top of the list of, of things that you as a part of Dev League would want to teach people.
3: You know that was a question that Jason and I, Jason Sewell and I, you know, are the other co-founder, and I discussed very early on. You know, the first thing I said, "Well, let's teach Ruby and Rails." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, he did the research. He's a smarter guy, right?" Mm-hmm. And he came back and said, "Well, let me you know take a look at this. And, and JavaScript, HTML5, CSS3 are actually way more in demand." And a lot more jobs are available for it hmm so you know it was almost like the lowest common denominator in terms of front-end web development um, and all the different toolkits but of course you know working in, in collaboration and using github uh, and, and really collaborating with other people and then of course getting people into these interesting roles that they can do some cool stuff and build some cool stuff was part of the part of the the offering so it wasn't just purely the coding side of it
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, learning how to build things, right? Learning how to become a creator. I mean that's that's super empowering, right? Yeah. So I mean I think that's kinda of what Russell's saying. It's all those things that go along with the technical skills that are the things that you know, that you're gonna hire for, right? You don't you don't just hire somebody because they say they know JavaScript, right? Right, right. You hire someone because you look at their GitHub account and right. they have well, a ton of cool projects and they show interest. In being a programmer.
1: Well, right. I mean, so I was about to say when you say amateur programmer, I mean, I dabbled in, gee, COBOL, and I used to do websites, but I don't think I particularly qualify. And the, the, what I do think is empowering, though, is, I mean, for example, we had um, the folks from uh, Happy Hour Pal, an app and a website, uh, Carrie and I think Brandon Bennett. And, I, was,
3: I was here last time with them Right.
1: And, the, and Brandon taught himself entirely by watching YouTube videos about programming and just worked his way through, pounded his head, stayed up late overnight, and got that done. And like you said, there's massively online online courses that you can teach yourself these things. Um, So even if you're not at uh, what you would be able to say you're a – you're a amateur programmer. You can get there and be ready for Devley pretty quickly.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in in the example you just described, where Brandon was looking at wa- you know watching uh, YouTube videos, right? He was obviously very motivated, mm-hmm. right? And we met Carrie as well too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and the, he was very motivated, and, and that's great because a lot of it is motivation and wanting to figure out how to pr- how to. Problem solving create stuff and really build stuff. You know what we're always trying to do is build up, you know, build up the create the the opportunity to have the you know the hustler, the hacker, and the designer kind of triangle. That's that that's the modern tools and the modern type of setup for a, a startup. You know, an internet startup mm-hmm. anywhere, whether it's in Hawaii or in, in the Bay Area.
0: You know, we're talking to Russell Chang and Kyle Oba, both uh, super programmers. And uh, if you got a question or comment and want to get involved, get your skill sets up to par. Uh, this is the number to call nine four eight three six eight nine or 941. 941 nine four one three six eight nine. Neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. And uh of course we've uh been uh, uh you know waiting to get uh have Andrew give us uh, um uh, get a chance to come on the air here on Bite Mars Cafe. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi guys, thanks. Sure.
6: Uh great show. I really like it. You guys got me really interested on my drive at home and well yeah so my question is like um early initial you guys mentioned about what can we do like someone posed a question it's not just about the money but what can we do to um be competitive or at least become competitive, to silicon valley where we can keep um a talent working from here and the first thing that struck my mind as an economist is what are the advantages that we do have here in hawaii so the two main things i see here is that one we do have a just local economy. So we have like everyday things like, um, say, local transportation, um, or like state services. And the other one is like tourism. So my question is, it's kind of like a multi part question. It kind of tackles a little bit different precedent. The first part of it is like, what part, is there anything that DevLeague has, like, aside from building up the skills that a developer can u- utilize in making a project happen, is there like, um, any Kind of like, I guess you can say, networking or any kind of work uh, from like the tourism industry that would be interested, or has there been any interest on either side for that?
0: Okay, Andrew. I mean, that's, yeah. Oh, is that uh, Is that just the first part, or? You have a no, second point.
3: that's the main question. Okay, yeah. I'm not even sure. I'm sorry, I'm not sure the question here. Well, I mean, well, so okay, you might learn the program, well, but, yeah. but uh, do you do
1: you do you introduce people to opportunities? Do you right, connect right? So them you, with you you
3: know you can you can
0: learn the skill, you can teach the skill, but then can you also make the environment or offer the environment for the opportunity?
3: Yes, we have Dev League has an employer network, and um, just. In fact, just yesterday morning, we did get confirmation from Google that uh, they would take a look at our, you know, our graduates and their and our, the resumes that come out of um, the Dev League Graduate Program, mm-hmm. um, and they would look at it in, in terms of uh, hiring for front-end web developers.
1: And in fact, Jason, your co-founder was a developer for a local hotel. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So there is there are those opportunities, and now that you've said that, I have to make sure my company is on the list to uh, to to hear about the people. Well, coming maybe you know. So
0: yeah, maybe you know these, these
1: companies in town should be a
0: part of a, a mentor pool or something, so that they can sort of spec out uh, check out the talent and maybe see opportunities that might.
3: Absolutely, and we would welcome you know we welcome having people into the employer network so that they can you know have first shot at 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 some of the graduates that come out of Dev League. Um, You know, I want to add in something here that I think people are not thinking, may not have thought about. Um, There are a lot of concerned parents out there of graduates of, you know, from the high school level and also at the college level that for their adult children and that they might be concerned about. Um, You know, we may offer, Dev League may offer an alternative to, um, you know, a better future. Right. You know, we obviously want to get people to graduate from college, but for some people, it's not their goal to do that. And for well, some people, they want to get into the workforce.
1: Well, I'm thinking about my daughter and opportunities, and I'm also thinking about tuition. So I think a question that is natural is, okay, a multi-week program, very intensive. You come out the other end, largely skilled. Um, is What is the tuition for Dev League?
3: The tuition for Dev League currently is $10,000, but we do have two programs for... Um, uh, locally here, one is for women programming, women pro- uh, women coder, and the other one is for a low income um, uh, coder. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you don't have the means to pay for it doesn't mean you should be excluded. And so I know that Jason, my partner, was very, very adamant in, in including that, you know. And um, we thought that we, it was important to give back to the community, so we set up these two scholarships, and we welcome everyone to apply for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, now Kyle, you know, uh, it's interesting because perhaps in. Earlier days, the community colleges were sort of skilled to get you prepared for a possible vocation, and and college, of course, is sort of gearing you more toward a uh, perhaps in a research uh, direction or or something at another level. And and even at the college levels, the courses that they teach tend not to keep up with the demand that is uh, that is out there. So I'm kind of curious, Kyle. You know, in terms of uh, the experience that you've had. Uh, introducing this this class at at uh, Iolani and and seeing what the kids there are interested in. Uh, you guys are directing them in terms of what kind of programs and what kinds of skills they might develop. But what what is what is their tendency in terms of their interest? Are they interested in in really getting their hands on, or are they interested in more the academic side of it because they want to go to college? I mean, what do you what do you sense?
4: Um, it's a mix. Um, you know, Iolani just uh, introduced a one to one iPad program uh, last year, I believe. This year is the first year where every student has an iPad. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of it. So we're essentially using the iPad as sort of like the gateway. I don't want to say drug, but the <laughs> sort of well, the Apple would probably. Yeah, like exactly. That. It is a bit. Um, but that's sort of like the hook to get people interested in the course. Um, but really what we're giving them is a design and development experience where exposure to the design and development process, right? Mm-hmm. Like as if they were working in a design studio. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a bit of a simulation because it is a high school classroom. Uh, but that is essentially what we're trying to provide them. Is an is a exposure to things that they would might not necessarily be exposed to in a in a quote unquote normal peer programming class.
0: So what you're teaching, what you're teaching at Iolani, is that something that could be uh, let's say scaled to be offered at a uh, community college, or is that something that could even perhaps be taught at at uh, Dev League? I mean, how how. Can you see making a living doing what it is cuz it sounds like there's a probably a good demand for being in that kind of a class. I mean, I would I would take it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there is quite a
4: bit of pent-up demand for getting, you know, people, you know, it's, it's kind of like what Russell was saying, there's a lot of concerned parents. They want their kids to have up-to-date skills when they get out of high school or college. I feel like there is a lot of pent-up demand for modern programming skills mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also end design as well and coupling those things together learning how to work in a team. Um the scaling bit, I think, is the tricky thing, right? You got to have instructors, you got to have facilities, um, people got to got to buy in and pay for it, right? So that's a bit of a energy barrier there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say is that you know we're looking at what the students are interested in, and one of the things that they're really interested in is Minecraft. And oh, so we boy. recently started um, sort of experimenting with using Minecraft as a as sort of an immediate yeah. feedback system for programming, because you can literally hook into a a Minecraft server and and inject code into it. Yeah. And so yeah, I mean I'm not I don't want to turn this into a Minecraft discussion, but that okay. is sort of, I think, the model in my mind is finding things that the students are interested in. Students and adults mm-hmm. are interested in and building a curriculum a curriculum around that. Because one thing that I do know for sure is if I just if I plan something out way too far
1: in advance. The students are bored, and and things right. will change. But I mean, right. my kids are building things in Minecraft. They're you know, there's logic switches in the game. They can right. make blocks move right. if this, then that. It's it's blowing my mind. Now, Aren't you
0: saying that the, your, your kids' costumes are going to all be based? Yes, on they're also
1: going to be <laughs> Minecraft for Halloween. Uh, we only got another minute, but uh, Russell, if somebody was uh, interested in participating, what's the ramp up and how would they learn more?
3: Well, the first step they can do is really go to their website at devleague.com, which is D E V L E A G U E.com. And we have enough information there for them to take the next step and sign up.
1: And uh, Kyle, for Pa du chocolat, oh, chocolat, um, where can folks find more?
4: dot uh, T.com. Or if you look at meetup.com, there's a local group of developers at uh, O U D L or Oodle. It's meetup.com slash dynamic. That's the website, and you can just suggest a talk, and then we'll find a speaker and oh. have a workshop or a talk on that topic. Yeah, we'll put that Fantastic. up in the show notes.
0: Russell Chang just launched Dev League, and Kyle Oba heads up Padu
1: Chakala. Thank you both for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much for having us. It's been thank fun. You for,
4: yeah, thank you very much. Good time.
1: And thank you for listening and calling in to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we'll talk about using open source programs in the classroom. And if you miss any
0: part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at markscafe.org.
1: Of course, you can also tweet us. I'm at Bite Marks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, we leave you
0: with our song pick of the week. Here's a band to code by it's macklemore and a song called can't hold us see you next week on another edition of bite marks cafe it's a party my posse been on broadway
3: and we did it all way from music i my skin and put my bones into everything i record to it and yet i'm on let that stage light go and shine on down got that bob barker suit game and plinko in my style tell me nothing we give it to the people spread it across the country Can we go back
0: this is the moment tonight